chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 3, we'll begin in verse 13, I mean in verse 7, and read through chapter 4, verse 13, and that's long enough that I will uh, let you remain seated. Uh, But if you would, please give your uh, attention to the reading of God's Word. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord does indeed stand forever. Would you pray with me? 
Uh, We pray, our Heavenly Father, uh, that You would grant to us uh, wisdom and understanding, uh, unstop, um, stopped up ears, uh, loosen lips and tongues to celebrate and praise, open minds to hear and embrace and understand, open hearts, soften our hearts that Your Word would not simply bounce off and land elsewhere. Would you do the work in us necessary to make us hearers and doers, to make us recipients of your word, that it might strengthen our faith and conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Um, So literally this morning, this started. Like, it wasn't there. I left the house and this started. Which... (laughs) in the world we're in makes you nervous. Um, but I will, which means I'm probably gonna have to talk slower, but anyway, um, you know, when you go to the doctor, um, for your sort of regular checkup, there really are three things the doctor can tell you, right? One thing the doctor can say to you is everything's fine. Go home, be warm and be filled, come back in a year or whatever. One thing the doctor can tell you is this, and whatever the this is, and there could be any number of thises, right? This is wrong. This is messed up. This is broken. This is damaged. This is not the way it's supposed to be. We have to fix it. And that may mean all sorts of things. The third thing the doctor could tell you is you don't have something wrong, but you're about to. You don't have something wrong, but this right here is not a good sign. And so here's some things that you need to do to make sure this doesn't get worse and so that I don't have to come in and do things you don't want me to do. That is, in essence, what this passage is. It's a a physician basically looking at God's people and going, here's a warning. Here's a thing that could be wrong. It may not be, but let me warn you that there is a threat. There is a danger. There is, there is something out in front of you that may very well go wrong. And he lets us sort of know what that is. And then he says, here are the things you can do to prevent that. To keep the threat, the danger at bay. He sees the, the danger. He warns against it. And then he gives These preventative measures that we can take to guard against the threat. And in essence, what this passage is, is a, don't get any crazy ideas, but it's a short sermon on Psalm 95. Basically, the writer of Hebrews takes Psalm 95 and he says, look, this is what David is writing to you, even though we live Hundreds of years later, and now you and I reading his warning, living now a couple thousand years later, almost receiving the same warning, the same uh, sort of this could be wrong. Now, here's the preventative measures that you need to take. Because the reality is. We live in a world that will look at you. And ask you things. Now, they may not say it this way, but they will ask you things like, why on earth do you believe in Jesus? Why do you believe the Bible is God's word? Why would you hold to some 
ancient, archaic, man-made. It's so out of date. It's so out of touch with the world today. You are a fool. That's basically the audience of this, this original audience to this letter to the Hebrews. They are Jewish Christians. They were Jewish by birth, living in, in the first century. It's probably 60 to 65 AD before the, the temple was destroyed in, in 70. Um, they've come to saving faith in Christ. They've, they've gotten connected to the local church. And yet, and, and now because of that, they're dealing with the persecution of both the Gentile Greek Greco-Roman world around them and their Jewish family. How dare you forsake the religion of your fathers? How dare you forsake that which we raised you to believe? And so they're, they're in danger. The, there's this threat. There's this, and, and this passage exposes the threat that they just might fall away. There may come a point where they say, no, there's, there's, there's too much outside pressure. I'm, I'm getting too much flack from my family. I'm getting too much from people around me. I'm, I'm done. I'm quitting. I'm walking away. A.W. Tozer, in his commentary on Hebrews, had a sentence that said, circumstances don't change us. They expose us. And so the question is, as the circumstances of our world get more and more difficult to hold on to Christ, then what? When the going gets tough, then what? That's the question here. Moses, you remember, brought Israel. Um, uh, Bob gave you the, the heads up, actually, from Psalm 95. I'm rather impressed, quite honestly, Bob. Um, not surprised, but impressed. Um, Moses brought Israel out of Egypt. They were 400 years a, a slave in, in Egypt. Um, and, and the people watched as God brought plague after plague after plague on the Egyptians until finally that, that last plague, that 10th plague in Exodus 12, the death of the firstborn. And, and any house that had the blood of the lamb painted on the door, everyone who was covered by the blood of the lamb, the angel of death passed over and they were allowed to go free. The Israelites watched as God did that to set them free from Egypt. And then they watched as they, as they fled the Egyptian army and, and got trapped. They're, they were pinned in, right, between the Red Sea in front of them, the Egyptian army behind them, and then what? Well, apparently that's not a big deal for God either. Because they, they crossed the Red Sea on dry land. Literally, the waters parted. They, they crossed, and then the Egyptian army swallowed up in the Red Sea. And, and you would think, you would think that, that you really wouldn't need much more than that. Right? When, when if you were delivered like that from slavery in Egypt, surely you wouldn't be... Um, you wouldn't have short-term memory. You wouldn't forget what you saw. You wouldn't forget what you experienced. You wouldn't forget, right? I mean, we're all better than that, right? You're just, that's supposed to be a joke, of course. Because how long was it before the people finally said, it's just time to go back. We've had enough. 
You brought us out here in the desert, in the wilderness to die. We don't have water to drink. And so they grumbled and they complained. And Moses hit the rock. This is the first time. Uh, and, and Moses hit the rock and water comes out and he calls that place Massa and Meribah. And then later in Numbers uh, 20, you get the same thing. This time Moses was angry. He hits the rock twice. He was only supposed to speak to it. Water comes out. He reminds them of these words. But Psalm 95, which is... Hebrews 3.8 is a quote of Psalm 95.8. It's an exact quote. You're going to say, no, it's not. You're going to say, I don't see the words Meribah and Masai anywhere in Hebrews chapter 3, except they're there. Because if you remember, the writer of Hebrews is using the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The fancy word is the Septuagint, Right? Um, he's using that. And when, when the Greeks translated the Hebrew into Greek, they used the Greek words for rebellion and testing. He's quoting Psalm 95.8. The, the people rebelled. They tested God. They, um, they, they quarreled with Him and, and tested God. And in essence, David is using... David writes Psalm 95 as an instruction, an instructional history lesson for his people in Israel. Don't be like those people way back then, several hundred years ago. And now the writer of Hebrews is doing the exact same thing, taking David's writing, which is a reference to Moses and to Joshua and applying it to his audience and to us. I was asked on um, the floor of Presbytery when I was being ordained, examined for ordination. If those words mean nothing to you, let's get coffee. It doesn't matter for the point here. But I was, I was being examined for ordination uh, on the floor of Presbytery, and a seminary professor asked me, why study church history? You know the right answer. Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. That's the warning. That's the, the heart of the threat here in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. When the delivered Israelites were finally on the brink of, of entering the promised land, they sent spies into the land who came back with a report, we can't do this. I mean, yeah, the, the food's amazing. I mean, you've never seen fruit as big and juicy as the stuff in this land. Is it great for, for crops and for living and for growth? It's perfect for all of that. Is it flowing with milk and honey? Yes, absolutely. They didn't deny any of it. All they said was, there's giants. Their eyes told them not to believe God's promises. What their eyes saw said, I can't possibly believe what God has told me to do. And so chapter 3 verse 16, that entire generation with only a couple of exceptions, all of them died in the wilderness. None of them made it to the promised land. 
Who was it that heard the warning? Who was it that, that, that Psalm 95 is about? It's about the very people who came out of Egypt, who saw everything that God did to defeat the Egyptians. And they said, that's not good enough for me. There are giants in the land and I can't possibly believe God's promises. Their circumstances exposed the hardness of their hearts. The circumstances exposed their unbelieving hearts. Isn't that really the essence of sin? Isn't that really sort of the the essence of what we do when we sin? Aren't we in essence saying to God that, that my eyes tell me something else. My eyes tell me what I refuse to believe with my mind, with my heart. I will not trust you because I want this and this looks good. And so... The reality is that exposes the the disbelief, the unbelief in our hearts. And so the people of Israel rebelled against God and his promises and his care for them. They decided that they would throw in the towel and they said, this is not going to work. Hardened, rebellious, unbelieving hearts are merely exposed by the circumstances, by the difficulty of the circumstances we find ourselves in. But there's something odd here. I told you, if you get the email, if you actually read the thing and you saw the picture of the snakes, right? I told you, it's it's tangled. It's convoluted. It's not hard. It's just... Tangled because you literally have six eras of church history tied up in this one passage. The threat, the danger for these first century Jewish Christians, for this original audience of Hebrews, is the same danger that that David warned about in Psalm 95. Both are in danger of missing out on the promised rest. Both are in danger of of missing out on the rest that God has promised to his people. Both are being encouraged to learn from the past not to miss out. But isn't, isn't that weird? Because both of these generations, both of of these audiences, David's audience and the the audience in Hebrews, they both live after Moses. They both live after Joshua. And if you read Joshua, ladies Bible study plug here. If you read Joshua, you're outright told that the land was given rest, that the people were given rest in the land. So why then would David writing to Israelites in Israel, warn against missing out on rest if the rest was merely a Google Maps problem. Right? If it was merely a Google Maps issue. Hey, S-I-R-I. You you can't say her name. I don't know what phones are going to do. Right? I need directions to Israel. 
That's a Google Maps thing, right? That's just a, a GPS thing. That's a physical maps deal. If that's all it is, David's audience is already there. Why warn about missing out on promised rest? Well, did you notice verse 19 of chapter 3? We see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. I'm just going to tell you right now. You may disagree with Siri. You may disagree with Google Maps. You may not like the way she takes you. But if you do what she says, no amount of unbelief will keep you from getting to where you're going. Unbelief doesn't keep you from a physical, tangible GPS problem place. It, this, this isn't about, and it never was about, a place. It never was about a spot on a map. In fact, look at chapter 4, verse 2. Good news came to them, just at, to us, just as to them. You see it again in verse 6. Since therefore it remains um, uh, for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news, that's the Greek word gospel. They heard the same gospel you and I do. Okay, they didn't have Jesus' name, except that Jesus is really just a Greek version of Joshua. But they didn't have Jesus' name. But the point is, the people in Moses' day were saved exactly the same way as the people in David's day, which are, who were saved exactly the same way as the people in the writer of Hebrews' day, who were saved exactly the same way as the people in our day. By grace alone, through faith alone, in the promised Messiah alone. In other words, all along, the people of Israel were looking for spiritual rest. They weren't just looking for Israel. They weren't looking for a spot that they can find on their topographical map. They were looking for something that only the Redeemer can give. They were looking for real spiritual rest. That rest was in Moses' future. It was in David's future. It was in Hebrews' future. It's in our future. Except that it is real. Right? Isn't, didn't Jesus say, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'm going to heap some more stuff on your back. Come to me who are weary and heavy laden and let me make things a little more difficult for you. I will give you rest. Jesus is the very rest that the people of Israel needed and looked for. He is the same rest that we are looking for. The threat is this, this danger of a hard heart missing out on the promised rest, which is ultimately heaven or even the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. So what's the prevention? What then do you say? What's the, what are the preventative measures that you and I can take? Well, the writer of Hebrews actually gives us three. The first involves verbs that you might find unusual. Um, you know, we have this completely unfounded notion that living the Christian life today is more like tubing than kayaking. 
Now, I don't mean tubing like behind the boat at 40 miles an hour getting dragged and slunk. Like, I mean literally dropping into an inner tube, into some nice, cool river stream, floating downstream in the shade of the trees until you decide it's time to get out and, you know, you get to the spot where you've left the other car, that kind of tubing. That's what I mean. We have this notion that, that, that the Christian life, that living the Christian life should be more like tubing than kayaking. Kayaking's a little more involved, right? You've got to fight wind and, and waves and current, and you've got to paddle, and you've got to make sure you're heading the right direction, and you've got to row, and if you stop rowing, you float the wrong direction, and you've got to keep rowing again, and it's this constant sort of labor and work. Look at these verbs. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. Take care brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil. And I have had uh, the magician's nephew in my head all week. I read it two weeks ago, and now here I am, this evil. Um, verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Look at verse 11. Let us therefore strive. To enter that rest. Doesn't that seem odd? In our minds, rest means sit back and do absolutely nothing. There's no striving involved. And yet the writer of Hebrews is saying, let's strive to be certain that we enter that rest. Those are kayaking verbs. Those aren't tubing verbs. Those are, those are work and, and labor and struggle Verbs. Is he suggesting that we're saved by works and not by grace? No, not at all. He's suggesting that if we're saved by grace, we will labor hard to trust in Christ, to pursue him, to pursue holiness, to hate and forsake sin. Our softened, our softened hearts, our salvation will be at work. And this laboring is evidence of our conversion. But he's also saying that we must labor to fight against disbelief, to wrestle against the old sinful self, the hard heart. There's a second prevention for this threat. When the doctor does tell you, if the doctor does tell you, and some of you have been down this road, you have cancer. Uh, you have uh, coronary artery disease. Uh, you have a ruptured appendix. When, you, when the doctor does tell you there's something wrong, you need surgery. The reality is that's also what we need. Notice verse 12 of chapter 4. God's word is living and active. It's sharper than anything your doctor owns in all of his possessions. It separates things your doctor can't see. It separates things. It discerns things that you may not even always be aware of. God's word operates on us. It chips away at calluses. It softens hardness. It, it strengthens faith when disbelief and unbelief begin to grow. It reminds us of his faithfulness to his people. The 
but there's also a, a connection here. Uh, the writer's not suggesting that what you need more than anything is just to read your Bible more at home by yourself. But he's actually, he connects it to the Lord's Day. He connects it to the day of rest that is, is our Christian Sabbath, the Sunday, the Lord's Day. Because notice, God rested on the seventh day, verse 4. We're reminded of a Sabbath rest that remains for us, verse 9. In other words, the Lord's Day is a foretaste of eternal rest. Keeping, resting in Christ on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, is a, a, a sampling, a foretaste of the new creation, of resting in Him for all eternity. It's like an appetizer before the meal. It's, it's, it's enough to give you a taste and make you delight and long for more. As a third preventative measure, and we find it verse 13 of chapter 3. Living the Christian life is not a solo sport. It's a team sport. Did you notice verse 13? Exhort one another every day. You need people around you who will encourage you in your walk with Christ. You need to be where God's people are. You need people around you who will exhort you to, to press on, uh, to root out sinfulness in your life. And there's a couple of implications for this. The first is that you need to be around other believers. If you ever wonder why you struggle in your faith and, and you're discouraged and you doubt and, and you feel just weak and feeble. And then you examine your schedule, your calendar and go, huh, I'm, I'm not very often with God's people. I, I, I sometimes maybe kind of go to church on occasion. I, I'm not where God's people are. You have your answer. This passage says you need people around you who can exhort you and encourage you. In your walk with Christ. There's a second implication um, about this also. And it's that, um, that you need people and that, that we in the church need to be able to, to, to warn people about dangers in their lives. The world today tells you, you do you. Right? That's the phrase. You do you. The reality is sometimes me is bad for me. And sometimes me is bad for me and other people around me. And what we need is people not to come in and say, you do you, but instead to say, you better not do you, or you're going to end up wandering down this road of danger. You need to run to Christ. You need to run to Jesus. You need to, to be reminded all over again, encouraged all over again of the glories of Christ. We need other people in our lives. Let me close with an illustration. We, um, we had to get rid of a car a couple of months ago. We've had way too much car issue this, this year. It's been ridiculous. We had to get rid of a car, uh, I don't know, this summer at some point. I don't know. Um, and it's probably the first time I've ever um, been sad at a car. And you're like, it's a car. It really wasn't a car. 
It was everything that the car represented. It was everything that had happened in that car. Because you see, there, there's five of us. And, and we have a dog. And for years, we had two dogs. And we're too cheap to buy five plane tickets to go places on vacation. And, and then you got to rent a car. And then you got to do something with the, the dogs. And so we drove this Suburban to Colorado three times. Went to Michigan once. We went to Maine and into Canada once. We've been to Florida a couple of times. This car has covered almost all of the entire eastern two-thirds of the country. Um, and the, the, the issue is you're driving 20-plus hours to Maine. You're driving 20-plus hours to Colorado. Why on earth would you do that? Actually, the real question is, what are you going to do when you're 14 hours in and you're driving across North Texas or Kansas? I hope nobody's from. And you're just done. I'm just so done with being in this car with nothing to see. There's, right? Why do you keep going? I suggest to you there are two reasons. Because of the hope of where you're headed and the encouragement of the people in the car with you. That's the Christian life. That's the way we live the Christian life. Why do we press on when things get tough? When the, when the tough gets going, when the, when the going gets tough, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to encourage each other and we're going to celebrate and rejoice and, and, and bless and honor and, and, and quite honestly, help people point out, look, this is a sin. This is a threat. This is a danger. You're in danger of, of this situation here. And let me put my arm around you and steer you back this way. The, the joy of the people in the car encourage you to press on. Coupled with what waits for you at the end. Eternal rest with Christ. No sickness, no sin, no pain, no death. You're about to sing those words. It's that rest that waits for us at the end. May God grant us the grace to press on and to exhort each other while it is today in our walk with Christ. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for this warning that uh, we uh, may, there's always this, this, this possibility, this danger of, of unbelief, of disbelief, of casting off all that you have have promised to us and and it wouldn't be losing our salvation it would be revealing the fact that we never were trusting to begin with father would you would you so be at work at grace covenant that we exhort and encourage and rejoice and bring delight and help each other root out sin point each other to the cross then find there in Christ all the rest we need, all the rest offered to us. Would you give us the grace and the strength and the endurance to 
to walk, to live, to kayak this Christian life. Even in the face of danger and distraction, would you guard and keep us? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.